It was the year 1846 in the town of Vienna. A doctor by the name of Ignaz Simowes was to oversee a new OB clinic that was kind of new at the time. And as he's practicing during that year, he's noticing that there is a very high mortality rate among the women, among the patients. There, there was an illness called childbed fever, which the results were about 30% of them would die. And he's just completely at a loss. Why is this happening? And so he started to take a look at it and find out, what are we doing that could cause this? And he noticed that doctors were not washing their hands between patients. And so he thought that he would try something on the wing. That he would have his doctors under him wash their hands and also use chlorine to uh, cleanse the hands. And suddenly, within weeks and months, that rate went from 30% down to less than 1%. You would think that the doctors of the hospital would be excited about that. Well, at that time, that was kind of an unproven, unscientific theory. And so he was actually ridiculed by the medical community at large. He eventually left the hospitals. And guess what some of the doctors who said, you know what, how dare them think that we're the ones passing it from patient to patient. We're going to go and reverse that. That's silliness. Well, within a year that mortality rate went back up to 29%. You see, these doctors who are blind to that truth cost the lives of hundreds of women. And, And I think about something in our own lives. Could there be a truth that we're so blind to that we don't want to see that might cost us eternity? Could it be that we are deceived into thinking that we are Christians when in fact we're not? You know, how can that be? When I went to Columbia Bible College, I met two individuals who became my best friends, Phil and Tina Sanders. And they actually went through and finished their master's degree in missional work, uh, in Bible and also uh, anthropology. And they went on the mission field about 10 years later. And Phil was looking at Tina's life and realizing that she absolutely dreaded to do what she was doing and that her her heart wasn't in it, that she struggled to pray and struggled to share her faith. And Phil was under this conviction that, you know, I I think I need to tell Tina this, this thought I'm thinking. And so he goes to her and he says, Tina, are you saved? And Tina's reaction was, how dare you, Phil, tell me or ask or question that I would be even saved. I grew up in church. My father's an elder. I went to Bible college, for goodness sake. I'm on the mission field. I'm a Christian. Well, that night, the Holy Spirit brought Tina under full conviction. She realized that there was not a time in her life where she truly surrendered to Jesus as her Lord and Savior. 
And that night, she became born again. Phil said he woke up, and he was like, who are you? (laughs) She had a joy about her. She had a hunger to study God's word and to pray and to serve God. And it was a night and day difference. I read a passage that reminded me of this scenario, that actually, as your local outreach pastor here at MCC, horrifies me to think that there might be some in this room today, in fact, I know there are, who are deceived into thinking that because I went to church or I go to church or because I do this or that, that I'm a Christian, this is a scenario in the future. Jesus is telling us that on the day of judgment, many, not... Uh, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Could you imagine how bankrupt that day will be for people who could fill in the blank with other things? Well, you know what? I'm a church member. I've got to be saved. Well, you know what? You can, you can look good on paper and even make through the interview and maybe not be born again. Well, because I go to a certain type of church. No, that doesn't make you a Christian. Well, because I do this and I, I do that and I, I, I just, I'm definitely into going to heaven because of all my things I do. Going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Have you heard that? Just because you go to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger, right? Just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. Another verse that... The Apostle Paul tells us. He, he actually tells us in the context of communion in 1 Corinthians as well to examine ourselves. He exhorts us to take a look at ourselves with sober-mindedness to see. To not be like the doctors who were just dismissing, nope, I know what I know and I'm not going to listen to any truth. He tells us to examine ourselves. He says this, examine yourselves to see whether You are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you realize that Jesus, Christ Jesus, is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? The Apostle Paul, as he was writing that, was spending the entire letter of of 2 Corinthians defending his ministry. You know, many were making accusations about his apostleship. And so he goes on and defends himself. Now he turns it on to them and says, now... You know that same manner you were, you're scrutinizing me? Examine yourself. That word examine has the concept of being in a courtroom. Uh, for those who have ever done courtroom uh, participation, if you're, you're called to testify, the lawyer will, will question you, right? Where were you on the night of, right? Is this truly what you believe? Until you have that moment, I can't tell you that, you know, you have that dramatic moment. But the purpose of that is cross-examination to see if these are really true. And that's what Paul is saying, to examine yourselves, to review, to scrutinize. 
And they also use the interesting word test. Uh, That word also in the Greek means to prove, to prove that this is true. Are there proofs? Is there evidence? When you think of proving something, I think of what James tells us. He says, faith without works is dead. You know, if you say you're Christian, there's going to be works. Works doesn't save you, but there's going to be some evidence. There's going to be some proof that you are a Christian by your works. Now, this morning, some of you might be saying in your heart, you know what? I hope that I'm saved. I hope I can get into heaven. I hope that I'm one of his. You don't have to have doubt. God gave us the Holy Scriptures to encourage us. In fact, the purpose of 1 John was written with this in mind. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You can know for certain. There is certainty to say, I am born again. So as we go into these questions and these tests, let's just briefly go before the Lord to ask to humble our hearts. Lord, this is a weighty thing to cross-examine our own life. I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you today, to put aside anything that we might be holding on to, to say that I'm a Christian because of this or that, but to really see what your word says to show what it means to be a believer, what it looks like to be a believer. So we need your help this morning, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. So the first question to ask yourself is this. Have you believed in Jesus as your Savior? John 3.36, the same author who wrote the gospel, says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. So that's a key, right? Belief. So what kind of belief? You know, is there a belief that you can have and still not be a Christian? Uh, I just this morning was reviewing some numbers that that 67% of our country believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Three out of four Americans believe in God. Let me ask you that. Does that make you a Christian? Automatically. Just because 67% believe that he is the Son of God. Could there be a fact, a belief that is not there yet, that, that doesn't penetrate down to the heart far enough to where you actually have saving faith? Well, look what James says in James 2.19. You believe that there is one God. Good. You know what? Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Interesting. Even demons can believe the truths of who Christ is. Right? So even demons can believe. So what does it mean to have saving belief, saving faith? The reformers in the 1500s were wrestling with this. They they decided to study that word, faith, and to find out 
what are the aspects of saving faith? So through careful Bible study and word study, they came up with three aspects. You're going to learn some Latin today, so congratulations. And for those who are teachers, I am so sorry because I'll probably butcher these words, so i tell you in advance. But the first aspect of faith is this, notitia. It's believing in the data or the information. It's an intellectual awareness. You can't have faith in nothing. That's a double negative, right? I know. (laughs) But you, you can't have faith in nothing. There has to be content to your faith. There has to be something that you, you know in order for you to believe. And so as Christians, if people ask us, what do we believe or what is the gospel? Here is just a very simple outline of what the gospel is. First of all, Jesus died in our place because of our sin. That's what we would tell people. That in the Bible it says this, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. See, the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he looked at us in our hopeless condition and knew that we could not save ourselves. One of my favorite passages is this in Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he looked down and he knew that you and I could not do enough to earn our salvation. That we were helpless and hopeless and we needed a solution. So that solution was to become like man. Be fully God and and fully man. And be that substitute. So he took our sin. Here's the second point of the gospel. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He's the one that a payment was made. It says this in Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. The Bible says that all the wrath of God was poured out on Christ... And satisfied the justice of God. In Romans, it talks about, for the wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God, hell. But Jesus made that payment for us. On the cross, do you remember one of Jesus' last three words? He was on the cross. What did he say? It is what? Finished. That means... Transaction complete. That satisfied God's justice. He became our substitute. It didn't stop there. We just sang about this. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. We just don't have a teacher who died. We have a Savior who lives forever right now. And he's coming back. He's alive. And he rose again, proving he was God Proving his victory over death. 
and securing a place in heaven. See, that's the facts. That's the the gospel content that everyone needs to know about. Here's the second, oh, I'm sorry, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to Scripture. So Scripture confirming this. So here's the, the second aspect. It's a census. This is the intellectual part. This is the persuasion, that I must be persuaded of the truthfulness of the content. I need to agree with the facts. I need to move from the terms, if you notice I was using the word our sins, like in in broad terms, to personalizing it. What, What do you believe? So what it would look like to agree or to have a census is this, to say, Jesus is the one who died in my place because of my sin. You see, you're personalizing. You're saying, I believe that. He did that because of my sin. He took my place. Jesus is the one who paid the penalty for my sin. And that Jesus is is the one who rose on the third day. So if you stop there, is that, is that saving faith? Is that enough to, to, to be a Christian? Well, there has to be one more aspect of it. And I think this is the missed aspect. This is the one thing that I really want you to review because it's so important is this. It's fiducia. Referring to a fiduciary commitment by which I place my life in the lap of Jesus. That I trust him alone for my salvation. He is the object of my faith. To illustrate this, I have a lovely chair here. So, I hope you're in agreement with me that chairs were built to hold people. Yes? Yes. Okay, everybody. Okay. Uh, So, chairs were built to hold people. Now, I look at that chair. I agree with that. Chairs were built for people. Now, I believe... Personally, that chair will hold me, right? I really do. I believe it will hold me, but that's not good enough. I need to actually prove it. So here, I'm putting my trust in this chair. Please do not tip over. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I have to tell you one time I did fall off a chair, which is kind of funny. I said, well, sometimes we fall from our faith. No, but anyway. But, But you notice what I'm doing here. I'm putting it to the test. I'm actually resting on this chair. Not just thinking that, yeah, chairs hold people. Yeah, I believe that will hold me. It's I'm actually doing it. And my question this morning is, have you completely put your trust in your faith in Christ alone? We just sang about that, in Christ alone. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. That's why many people think if I do enough good works, it will outweigh my bad works that I do. Well, Jesus said that, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard is perfection. And people say that if I do this, he will get me in. And it, No, there's no answer. Here's what Ephesians says. This is, this is something that, that humbles me every time I read this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith that is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. 
We are saved by grace. You know what that word means? Unmerited favor. God's riches at Christ's expense. Somebody made an acronym one time. He gives it to us as a gift. That's his grace. You know, if, if I were to say, um, here you go, you can, you can have my car, and I hand over the keys to you, and you take it, and you say, you know what, I'll write you a check. Does that cease to become a gift? Right. Yeah, it does. That's why we have to just receive the gift. We have to personally take it, possession of it, to trust. So that's the first aspect of belief. And this is the, the one I camped, in the mo- camped on the most uh, for the message, because I think this is the one thing that, that many people might not get. The second question you ask yourself as you're reviewing, are you sensitive to sin? Does sin bother you when you, when you, when you do it? Do you, do you feel like, you know what, I've got, to, I've got to get right with God? Or do you say, you know what, I'll let it ride till next week. And then I'll let it build up, right? I'll hit the reset button at the beginning of the year. Or are you quick to go to God and say, God, I blew it. Please forgive me. And that's throughout the day. Do you see yourself as a, as a sinner? We talked about God's holiness. When we see God's holiness, we see how imperfect we are. Remember Phil's uh, sermons last summer on respectable sins, right? We start looking at other things like, whoa, that misses the mark too. That maybe maybe pride or maybe selfishness is a sin in my life that I need to take care of. How do you view sin? Are you sensitive to it? This is what First John says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, that refers to his holiness. In him there is no darkness, no sin at all. If we claim to have fellowship and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Are you sensitive to sin? Are you sensitive to say, I need God, I need to get right with you? Or you just, you know, I'm not that bad of a sinner. I don't do the big stuff. When you tell a lie, does it bother you? When, you, when you're deceptive, when you, when you maybe cheat a little bit here and there, yeah, everybody cheats. Or you're like, no, God, that grieves you. Here's the third question to ask yourself. Do you obey God's word? First John uh, 2, 3 through 6 says this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Okay, John, could you be a little clearer for me? <laughs> you know, I, that, I missed that truth. I, it's, just, it's so abstract. No, it's so clear. He's saying that, that if you are not obedient, the truth is not in you. But if anyone obeys his word, 
love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know, again, that can you know, him, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Do you live a, a lifestyle that your friends, your family, your coworkers, you personally can see, does it reflect that? Or are you a different person? Do you, do you walk in maybe and, and say, you know what, I'm going to put on a, a, a good, hey, everybody, and then your life is totally different? Well, the truth might not be in you. And here's another point that John says about commands. He said, in fact, this is the love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. I love that. He says it's not a pain to do what God wants us to do. You know, I, I don't know if uh, it bugs you. Uh, here's, here's a little insight to, to my, one of my sins is patience. I, uh, I went to return something. And I always pick the line that has the new person at the register. Always. I don't know how I do it. I've got radar and I go, yeah, I'll do that line. And then I'm in line and it's horrific. Everybody's passing by. I'm like, just be patient, man. And, you know, I feel my eye twitching. And that's when I'm like, I'm starting, I feel my flesh coming up. I'm like, I'm going to say something. I'm going to say something. But then I realize, what does God say? He says, you're an ambassador for Christ. And so I'm thinking of scripture. All right, all right. Love is patient. Love is kind. Okay, all right, all right, all right, God. I will obey that. You're right. You know, that's an example of, you know, are you stirred up by his word to, to obey it? End of the story. I was, I was, I was nice to her. Okay. I was saying, Hey, good for you. So anyway, um, the fourth question to ask ourselves is, do you reject the world? You might be saying, what do you mean by that? The world in scripture, the world word that he's using for world is the world system. And that's described as Satan's philosophies and, and um, things that people say to do that's popular, that goes against who God is and his moral commands. It's our culture. All you need to do is just spend some time watching TV or movies. By the way, I like TV and I like movies and I like to listen to music. But just scrutinize every once in a while and it's like, what are they actually saying? And it's, it's amazing how the values of the world are pumped out by this. It's the world system. You know, are you so in love with the world and the values of the world, like fame and fortune and whatever it is, pride, that you don't reject it as, you know what, that's not, that's not what God wants. I don't want to be like the world. John, again, First John says, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you have the world the flesh and the devil. Those things. Are you married to those things of the world? Is that what's valuable to you? Well, the love of the Father might not be in you. And the last question to ask you yourself is this. Is the fruit of the Spirit, Holy Spirit evident in your life? 
can you sense that the Holy Spirit is alive in you? One of the things that, that troubles me is when I hear people say, well, you know what? I just don't have peace about anything that's going to go on in the future for the world. I don't have peace knowing that that I'm right with God or I'm saved. Or, or maybe it's that, you know, I just don't love people at all. In fact, I don't like people. We didn't get to that one, but John says, if you love, love God and say you hate people, the truth is not in you. So is the fruit of the Spirit evident? When you read the Word of God, does it come alive to you? Does it make sense? Because that's usually an indicator that there's no reception there, <laughs> that there's no Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit illumines the Word of God so we can understand it and be obedient. So what does it look like? Uh, Galatians 5 gives us, here's the fruit. Here's the evidence. Here is the proof that you have the Holy Spirit active. Now, we're not perfect, obviously, in these areas. <laughs> I don't know really anyone who has got all these nailed. But the question is, is this true in your life? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Are those marks in your life? Can you say honestly that this is active in my life? Could others say that about you? We're going to move into our, our time of, of communion right now. For those who are helping out with communion, uh, if you could come up. I love you all here, and I don't want any of you to be part of that group that Jesus was referring to, the Lord, Lord group. I, I, I urge you today to get this settled in your heart. If there's questions about, am I saved or not? I want you to ask yourself this question. This is the reflection question. If you were to be put on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence to prove beyond reasonable doubt that your faith is true and genuine? If not, as we pass around the bread and the cup in just a few moments, just take time to do that assessment, that inventory. And even if you need more time afterwards, uh, today or the rest, I'm here and we're here as a church to help you work through this. But you can make sure this is right today by this right here. Admitting your need to God. What you're going to do is you're going to say, God, you know what? I've been living a lie. I need you. And ask him to forgive you and help you to turn from your sin. And to help you trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And then finally to follow Jesus Christ, the king of your life forever.